podcast and this time on the mic we have a very very special guest Joe Filicetta. So Joe has what was your official title at the United Pro Hunters of PA? Well I've since retired but I did serve for over 10 years as a regional director um, or region two director. Uh, region two is like the southeast region of the state excluding Philadelphia and the Philadelphia area. It would be Northampton, Lehigh, Schuylkill, uh, Berks, and um, that's it, those counties. Okay, so just to give a little background about yourself, can you kind of tell me how you got into hunting, uh, how you were brought up into hunting, and what that was like uh, then? Well, I took my hunter safety course when I was 12. My father was a big pheasant hunter. Back then, uh, I was born in 1962. Back then were the heydays of pheasant hunting in Pennsylvania. Uh, my father talked about, my father was a World War II vet, so you know how far back he goes, but he used to talk about getting in a taxi cab with his shotgun and going down the road two or three miles and jumping out and just walking forever crossing property lines, wave to a farmer and hunt. You know, you didn't have permission, you didn't need to ask permission. Um, there were gentlemen's agreements with local landowners and you just walked and hunted. And if you ran into a farmer and he's fixing a fence, you stopped and said hello and offered some help and you kept going. And you know, that's kind of where I started. And uh, I hunted, the heyday of pheasants where there were native pheasants and you know when I was 12 I would bug my father every day after school let's go pheasant hunting. let's go pheasant hunting and uh, I'd go out and I'd miss a half a dozen birds I just you know excited young kid and uh, you know you knock the feathers off of a few and uh, it was just phenomenal and then uh, around the early 80s the pheasants started to disappear and dwindle and there's many many ideas, many reasons, they say, why they disappeared. Avian flu, uh, loss of habitat, clear farming, where they just cleared a crop field, nothing left but fence lines. Fence lines even disappeared, predators. Um, but as the pheasants went away, the, fez, uh, the deer moved in. And, you know, back when I was a kid, it was rare, you know, if you were pheasant hunting and you kicked up a couple of deer, wow, it was amazing. Look at the deer, oh my goodness. Today, people who live, younger people who live in Southeast PA have no concept of how fortunate they are. Um, a deer are, are literally everywhere and the yeah. opportunity is everywhere. So that's kind of where I started. So when the pheasants started disappearing and the deer started moving in, was hunting to you more so putting food on your like on the table for your family? Is that how you, your family looked at hunting? No, hunting was, um, that was a means to an end, uh, putting food on the table. And it was a big means to an end, you know. For my father who grew up in a depression, it was a big part of it, was putting food on the table. For me, there was a transition where it was just a desire to hunt. Like I had to hunt, I had to get out there. I had to, to pursue, to chase, to trap, to, 
uh, get blood on my hands, to, to gut birds and, and you know, to, to participate in the sport, I had to do it. It was, it was within me. And I think, um, I think that's a big part of it. Do you think that that kind of feeling, because I know exactly what you're talking about, I went through the exact same experience when I was younger too. Do you think that is inherently in everybody as far as human beings? No, I do not. I would like to think that it is, but I've seen um, that it's not. And why do you think that it's not? Um, because I lived it with my son. I took my son out. And when he was young, my wife would say, oh my goodness, I'm going to lose my son and my husband <laughs> because you guys are just going to go and hunting and fishing. And, and, and it was like that when he was young. And all of a sudden he was 15 and he shot a nice eight point buck and I was so proud. And uh, the next year he said, dad, you know what? I don't think I'm going to hunt anymore. And it, you know, it broke my heart. And he, he went away and, and it really left a big hole in my, in my, you know, what I perceived to be my future. Uh, not all hope is lost though. My son is now 31 and he is expressing an interest now to hunt again. Mm -hmm. um, he lives a very healthy lifestyle. He went through veganism for a while, but now he's back to eating meat and he will eat nothing but venison. And I said, you know, if you're going to do this, I, you know, I, I can only get so many tags. You've got to jump back into this. And he wants to. So uh, this year he's going to get his license for the first time since he was 15. And he's wow. going to get back into it. And over the years, he's seen all the merits of what I've done, all the good deeds that we've done through the United Boners of Pennsylvania, our disabled hunters program, how we reach out and, and, and you know, do good things for those less fortunate and he's gotten to hang around with a lot of my friends who hunt and he sees that intimate relationship and companionship of like-minded outdoor enthusiast hunters uh, and it's I have to say Torin it's unmatched out there in, in, in society it's unmatched as you probably realize the relationships you build at deer camp you know are relationships that last a lifetime mm -hmm. and they're deep mm -hmm. they're deep yeah without a doubt uh so now that you're going into this season with your son and he's getting back into it do you have a different outlook going into the, the 21 22 season looking at it differently now that you have your son to tag along with you and basically go through those things again yeah, uh, let me backtrack on that thought a little bit. I think as hunters, we all go through seasons. I'll say seasons. We start out in our youth, our first you know, 10 years, um, where we're just like that young buck. We're running around. We, we can't get enough of it. Um, you know, we just want an opportunity. Then we go through that season where maybe we're into big antlers, and, and we just do everything and anything to chase those big antlers. Um, and then we go through another season where it's something else. It's more, we find more of a connection and, and it's more about the experience. And I think it, it all wanes, like that whole trophy and all that starts to go away and other things start to take priority. And that's where I am now with my son. Um, 
I'm now back to hunting with the stick bow. So instead of waiting for a good Pope and Young buck, I'm going to shoot the first decent buck that gives me an opportunity uh, with the stick bow. And I'm going to fill the freezer and I'm going to set time aside to mentor and, and teach my son again, you know, and, and more give back to him mm-hmm. and pass on those things. There's so many rich values. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Aside from the antlers and, and all that, there's so many rich values that I want to pass on. Uh, I want to rewind here a little bit. So, when did you start getting into bow hunting? Because I know you're a very avid bow hunter. Um, from the very beginning. Really? Yeah, from 12 years old, and my father didn't bow hunt. Uh, I found a neighbor, a, a guy who had a bow, gave me a bow. Uh, it was, you know, a $15 stick bow and some wooden arrows, and I shot and shot and shot, and. I missed a bunch of deer, and when I was 15, I finally shot a doe with a bow. I killed a doe, and uh, I shot her at dusk, and uh, I got home, and I told my dad, and I gathered up my buddies, and and I didn't know anything about blood trailing, so I got all my buddies who were even non-hunters, and we went out, there was eight or 10 of us (laughs) with flashlights going through the field at night, and after about 150 yards, we came upon this doe, and it it was such an experience. To, to like, you know, be 15 years old and you hit a doe and you know you made a good shot and your blood trail and then all oh, the, the anguish and anxiety of, I might not find this thing. And then you find it and the highs of that. And to say it was just a doe, it, no. I, I mean, it, it, that I get goosebumps thinking of that experience. It was, it was phenomenal. And then to get it home and for people to say, that kid shot a deer with a bow. Because again, Torin, like I said, there were no deer around here in Southeast PA back then. And I was like a hero. <laughs> I shot a, a 75 pound doe with a bow, and with a stick bow. And it was, I, I was hooked ever since. How many people were bow hunting then too? Um, the ratio was way down. It would maybe be 5% of all hunters were, were actually wow. bow hunting. Isn't that wild compared to that? It is, and that's all technology-based, I think. You For know, sure. the, the challenge, you absolutely. I remember um, talking to a couple of my buddies who bow hunted, and it would be before the season. I'd say, hey, are you guys going bow hunting? They'd say, no, I haven't practiced this year. I haven't shot my bow, so no, I'm not going to hunt. Because to be proficient with a stick bow, you had to shoot. You had to be committed. Today with the crossbows and, and compounds, you know, you can you sight them in, you hang them in the closet, and next year you pull it out of the closet and it's ready to go. So there's, you know, that intimacy, that connection isn't, isn't there like it was back then. If you didn't have the discipline, you didn't put in the time, you didn't bow hunt. And a lot of guys didn't have the time, so they just, they never took it up. Yeah, no, you can definitely see that 9% agree with you. Uh, what do you think about that kind of intimacy going away from the sport. Like, for example, I would say, not for everybody, but in today's culture, a lot of people want want it easy and want it right away. Where you're not necessarily building the skills to make you successful. You're not going through those hardships, cutting your teeth, then becoming successful, successful, learning on all those mistakes, and becoming a better overall hunter. Do you think, like in my opinion, that's one of the most, uh, trying to think of the correct word, that's one of the things that I see hunting going in a direction that really saddens me, really saddens me. Like the way that I grew up, 
you, I was taught that you build the skills in the woods, you failed in the woods, and less of it was built off of the easy button or uh, taking shortcuts. Yeah, I'm right with you on that. Um, when I was a kid, again, nobody bow hunted. When we rifle hunted, I hate to say that it was colder back then, but it absolutely was. I mean, winters, um, you know, around here we have a, uh, in construction, um, they say you have to put your footers in 36 inches down because the frost line is at 36. Well, in the last 20 years, we haven't even had a one inch frost. <laughs> Those rules were made back then when in November you got a frost. It was freezing. It was cold and it was cold all winter. And I remember deer hunting when I was told as a kid you were taken to a tree and you were told, hey, you stand here, don't move all day. And it was 15, 20 degrees out and you stood by that tree all day. How many kids could do that today? Yeah. And you know what? You loved being there because you might see a deer. Yep. You might see a, a Y buck. Today, how many kids could do that? We all, my generation all did that, and we loved that. Um, I'm with you on the quicker, faster, easier, and I have an unpopular view um, amongst some people about our mentored youth hunt here in Pennsylvania, where you can take a child out as a father at whatever age you want. Um, I started hunting at 12. That was the rule back then. And I remember taking my hunter safety course and it was a two day course. And at the end of the two days, they took you out to a rifle range and they let you shoot a rifle and they let you shoot a 12 gauge shotgun. And I remember that was a lot for me to shoot that shotgun at 12. I can't imagine somebody six, eight, 10. Um, I need to see the statistics that show that we are re that, that this whole mentored youth program is actually retaining hunters 10 years down the road, okay? Sure, it's bringing a lot of kids in now, but when that eight or 10 year old shoots a 10 point buck because he's given every advantage of an early season and, and a crossbow that can shoot 60 yards and blah, blah, blah. Um, after he shoots one or two, what's next for him? You know, like I said, I was a hero when I was 15 and shot a doe, and I was so ecstatic. And it took me a long time to shoot, you know, get into shooting any kind of buck. Right. Um, I'm a little afraid of what the future holds for this faster, easier, quicker mentality. Um, do we get bored? Are we going to get bored with this? Okay, yeah, I've been there, done that. You know, well, I've been there and done that too, but it took me 30 years mm -hmm. of hard work, mm -hmm. sweat and toil, labor of love. You bring up a really good point, and like, just to play devil's advocate, because I do agree with you. <clears throat> so, you talk about retention, and you have fathers like yourself, where you're really excited to bring the next crop into manhood or whatever you want to call it father following in your footsteps to get into hunting and now you get to do that just a little bit earlier with the mentor youth program but like you said with advances in technology and ease of killing animals what does that look like when maybe dad is no longer around or that youth 
hits the age where they have to get an adult license and they no longer are being pushed into it from their father or whoever. You know what I mean? I, I would love to see the statistics as well to see what the retention is. Now, as opposed to, let's say maybe it's PGC spot like this, well, it doesn't matter for retention, we're getting those sales year in and year out. So when one crop falls out, there's already another crop to take its place. You know what I mean? That's good for the PGC, but what about us? What about you and I? You and I sitting here looking at the future of hunting. You know the future of hunting because those kids at one point in time there has to be a father that brings their son into the fold, and if a kid is into it till he's 15 and drops out, he's not going to be that father exactly. who gives that kid that first opportunity. Something I've done as of in the last five or 10 years, Torrin is, you know, I'm a general contractor and, and I talk to talk everywhere I go. Any, anytime I get an opportunity to throw the word hunting and an outdoor lifestyle and I preach it to everybody, especially those who have no knowledge. And people, because as you know, as is well documented, you know, 20% of the people hunt, 20% of the people are, are anti-hunters. It's that 60% in the middle that we all are trying to reach. Okay, who have no opinion one way or the other. They're neutral. Those are the people I reach to, and I get 95% positive reaction when I talk about the benefits of hunting, the beauty of it, the, the outdoor recreation, the, the clean protein that my wife and I get, you know, and I show people, you know, we're physically fit, we're 60 years old, um, and I blame a lot of that on the outdoor lifestyle, uh, eating good, clean protein, uh, I'm a huge advocate, and I get so much positive feedback from that. And I brought older people into, I have a good friend now, he's a local judge, and he's my age, and he never hunted, but he always had a little desire out there in, in the back of his head. Well, now he meets me, and all of a sudden I lit a fire under him. Mm -hmm. And I gave him the opportunity, he went out and bought a bow, he's shooting, we went pheasant hunting, He's he's... He's bringing his two kids. He's going to bring his two sons who are adults. They're 30 and 25. He's got them shooting a bow. And they're like, wow, this is cool. Let's go. I've had them at a 3D shoot. So I'm going after that mid-generation now who missed that opportunity as a kid. Didn't have a father to mentor. But possibly they have that fire inside somewhere. They need somebody to just stoke it. Right. And the beauty about that too is, all right, so... You've got your friend, the judge, and who then got his kids in, and then his kids can potentially get their kids. And now you just lit an entire generation, like a lineage of potential future hunters. Yes. If you look at it in the long scheme of things, and I think a lot of people do give up too early on whether people are going to go the hunting route or not. Look at it in the short term, whereas if you look at it in the long term, there's still a lot of gain there to be had. Now, my question to you is, as far as the 20-20 split and the uh, 60 in between, do you think it's damaging for hunting for a non-hunter to go to hunting and then go back to not as long as he's had positive experiences in the interim, a lot of people will try it and maybe not like it. Um, they see a dead animal. They've taken a life. You know, it's you know now you got to gut it and you got to process it and and turn you know that into food. 
it may turn some off. But the experience, the, the life-altering experience of being um, a participant, we are not spectators in nature. We are participants. We are part of this. Right. And, and the antis want us to believe we're just spectators. Don't, 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 be, don't go out there. Just look at the animals, but don't touch. Don't go out. Oh, geez. Keep them behind, you know, over there. But no, that's not. We are part of this, you know, because we wear clothing and, you know, we play on a computer. We are part of it. We are animals. We are, you know. God gave us domain over the animals. This is, this is our part in, in the world, in, in nature. I always get in debates with my friends about um, hunting recruiters, I call them, and if they don't take the right steps in helping retain the people that they're recruiting, that they should be held accountable because one, either they're not providing enough education or they're recruited to be successful and ultimately that leaves like a bad case for that once non-hunter who came to the hunting side then goes back to non-hunting and now maybe they're an anti-hunter because of that poor experience. Do you think that I have any uh, validity there? Mm, that's kind of a tough one. It's kind of a tough, I think it's it's an opinion that lives within you. I think it's valid, um, but not wholeheartedly. Um, I think we've, I'm trying to think of the right words now. I think we've kind of softened ourselves to society. And I don't think that's a good thing. Uh, I think I don't want to use the word loud and proud, but yeah, I think we need to be loud and proud. I don't think we need to hang a buck on the front of our truck anymore, but I think we need to speak. When we go to a social event, I think, because I do all the time, and I get like zero negative pushback, but I think too many people are afraid because they're gonna hurt somebody's feelings. The old cancel culture thing. Right, right. I, I think we have to not do that. Um, you know, Ted Nugent rubs some people wrong. But you know what? When he's not around anymore, who's going to speak for our rights? He, he is, he's loud and proud. But you know what? He eats venison and, and he talks the lifestyle and he'll go up against anybody. He's been on The View and he's, he'll, he'll talk to anybody. Oprah Winfrey. And he's just, he's very articulate, very intelligent. And he speaks of our lifestyle. And, and how beneficial it is and, and how, you know, these animals were put here for us to eat, you know? If we don't kill these white tails, somebody's front bumper's gonna kill them, you know? Animals don't live forever. The, right. the average, we know the average lifestyle, life, you know, span of a deer is four or five years, tops. You know, they are, succumb to something. If we don't, disease gets them something. We need to get that message out to those people in, in between. And, and like I said, loud and proud. Don't be afraid. Big smile on your face when you speak. And, and... I think, so I, I did a talk a couple months back for a Tijuana's club. And it was based around suicide, but a lot of it with my biology background ended up going towards wildlife management, but I related it to hunting. And how much non-hunters don't grasp the concept of what nature really is, like, really blew my mind. Now, I've experienced it before, but I've never experienced it to, like, that amount. So, one of the big things was brought up a 
about like CWD. It's like, well, there's this disease going out there and it's, it's uh, spreading all across the entire country, killing deer, stuff like this. Well, you literally just mentioned how the, on a long side, a deer makes about four and a half, five and a half years old in a wild population that's extremely long. I told the guy, CWD doesn't even start to take effect until a deer hits seven years old plus. So all this like hoopla about necessarily that uh, shows maybe just how unaware they are, but then not understanding, so I explained the, the exact same reversal of that. In order to reduce a population, especially a population where it's they're producing at least one offspring, you need to have a 60% mortality rate. Like, we don't even come close, and as hunters in general, don't even come close to affecting populations like that anymore. It's the things like cars, uh, disease, that's what really knocks it back. And being able to understand that if you don't keep populations in check, especially with the North American model of conservation, it's not the hunters that are, are hurting the animals, it's animals dying of starvation, it's animals dying of disease, it's animals getting mangled by cars, right. stuff like that. Um, that entire community walked away with a completely different light of how, one, animals in the wild die, and then two, basically how hunters harvest animals and it's, it's beneficial for the conservation of the herd, of the population, and how integral they are. So, enough about that, right? I want to rewind here again, and I want to talk about the easy button. So before we got on the air, we were talking about the, the internet and how it affects hunting, and how I believe it can be a double-edged sword, but I want you to kind of talk about how you went down a rabbit hole of the internet and how it helped you in hunting, as far as information, an information conflict. Well, I've, <clears throat> again, I'm gonna be 60 years old in February, so I grew up without, totally without the internet. When I was young, up until, I don't know, 35 or 40, um, you hunted with the tools you had on you, a knife, a bow, a gun, whatever, that's it. Today, everybody has a smartphone with 45 different apps <laughs> on, on, you know, wind direction, uh, maps, uh, on X. I mean, we, we can go on and on. Get, you want to check your deer, you check them in on the phone. Um, so I started with nothing, and now I've, I'm trying to keep up with technology, but as I'm getting older, technology is starting to get away from me a little bit. But I was here in the infancy of the internet, when computers and the internet was in its infancy. And I was one of the first people that I know in my network of friends back then who had a computer. $2,500 or $3,000. I remember, wow, mortgage the house for this. And my son said, we got to have it, Dad. We got to have it. And, you know, he was brilliant. Um, and back then, I jumped on and thought, let me, let me look into what I can do for hunting. So I start typing in, you know, like deer hunting in Kansas and I, boom, these websites start popping up. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm connecting with people. I'm talking, I'm getting on back then chat rooms with people from other states. And hey, I'm Joe from Pennsylvania and I'm thinking about coming out and hunting in the Midwest. And 
Back then, so many people were willing to talk to you, and I was amazed at that. That people would just, strangers would throw all this information, and I got a, you know, back 40, if you ever get out this way, we can, you know, I got, we got some big white tails, and da 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 da. And I was amazed, and I started doing it. I started making connections. And friends of mine, and, and back then I was a soloist, I did, because nobody, I, I don't want to say this, bragging, but nobody could keep up with me. I just, I had this fire in me that I could just jump in my truck and go with a sleeping bag, some clothes, and spend a week out there. Um, so I did that, and people would say, well, how could you do that? Who are you staying with out there? And, and are you on a guided hunt? And I'd say, no, no, I'm just, I'm going out there and I'm hunting. Well, how can you do that? How did you know? I made connections on the internet. When other people were going down other foul rabbit holes because oh you could find anything on the internet i was hunting because that's what i do that's what i've done since i'm a kid that's what i'll do till i die and i found that and it was wonderful and it opened up so many doors that today people take for granted i was the first one in there doing all that and now it's everywhere um i think today because of its power people have more been quiet and more secretive so I don't think, you know, there's not those people that give out the information like they once did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, without a doubt. And how much people use it now. Uh, do you see, do you see the power of technology and the internet as far as how easily you can get information also being a double-edged sword and how easily you can be misled on information? Yeah, like anything else, you have to be careful. You, you have to do your due diligence. You know, anything worth, you know, low risk is low reward. So, you know, you've got to do, do your work. You've got to do your research. Um, the other thing, I'll, I'll get off track on that a little bit because this is on my heart as well, is like the whole Facebook thing. I'm not on there. But... There's too many people posting too many things. Look at me, look at me. And I don't think that's good for the industry as a whole. I don't think so. Um, I've got some great bucks on a wall in my basement. They're not on my phone. They're not on my computer. I'm not going to text you pictures. But if you're a good friend of mine, I'll invite you to my house and take you downstairs and I'll show them to you. That's who I am. I don't think there's a lot of guys out there. Everybody wants to look at me, look at me, and, and I don't think that's good. We put too much emphasis on the antlers and the, you know, the stack of, you know, pheasants and you know, shot a limit of, of geese today. Um, so I think that that whole thing could be not serving for us. I had a conversation today with uh, a friend of mine and. He, we discussed basically this exact same concept. He feels that most of the hunting industry isn't being driven by hunters. So you have people that are in charge of, let's say, a Cabela's marketing team or Brand X marketing team that are not hunters. Well, all they care about is moving the bottom line, not necessarily what it does for hunting just that their company hits the next tier. Do you see in the next maybe 10 to 15 years a shift in that? Because to me, 
I think the hunting industry is behind almost 20 years as far as a whole in the outdoor industry. So like you have camping, you have backpacking, you have that side of things. They're pretty much the leaders in innovation. Then you have fishing, then you have hunting. Uh, one, would you agree with that? And then two, where do you see this whole show going in like the next 10 to 15 years? Well, I think um, it's like anything. It's like automobiles, you know. Uh, do we have to keep coming up with new concepts, new ideas? That marketing sells. You know, the bows of today, um, I talk about when I used to 3D shoot, you know, back in the day, I was at, when, when Bo shot 230 feet per second, I was a 260, 265 shooter. Today, Bo's are shooting 320, 325. I'm still a 260 shooter. <laughs> it has, the technology has gotten better. My ability hit a, hit a wall. Mm -hmm. I think all of us have. Mm -hmm. um, so technology... Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's at that point where uh, it just, I don't know, maybe it's too much. Maybe it's too much. I mean, let's get back to bows. You know, vertical bows hit that wall at about 230, or three, about 325, 330. Crossbows now, there is no wall. They're, they're hitting 500 feet per second. Where does it end? Who knows? That technology is, is still growing. Yeah. It's, it's actually scary. So um, I don't know what the future holds, if it's good or bad. I think, you know, technology helps, but we have to put, we as hunters, I think, have to put a, a hold on it and say, that's enough. Um, I was one who, you know, I, I'm all about retention and, and bringing new hunters into the fold, but the whole crossbow thing has really gotten out of whack from what they, they wanted it to be. Um, that tech, again, that technology is just, and even like long range rifles today, you know, I read an article just recently about elk hunting out west, and they said, you know, the mature bulls aren't, you know, aren't, aren't there anymore. Because now that bull you see at the other canyon, that bull, was out of, you know, out of your zip code? Well, now the new cartridges, you're shooting a half mile away. And they, they push that, just like they push that with the crossbows. Uh, you know, one-inch groups at 100 yards. At what point does that not become bow hunting? When bow hunting in its inception was a close and intimate sport, you know? Um, I could shoot a grapefruit all day long at 60 yards, yet I kill my deer under 20 yards all day long because that's what bow hunting is. You know, it's, it's what it is. So technology, yeah. It's, it's a weird concept because you have to factor in the aspect of where, does, where do you draw the line in front of what one, one hunter thinks is something and another hunter thinks is something else. You know what I mean? So for example, you talk about long range rifle shooting. Well, I mean, there's, there's guys out there stretching it out to 1,800 meters. To me, my personal opinion, that's not fair chase. 
It's not, but it's 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 driven by the manufacturers. No, no. Why were crossbows, you know, allowed into Pennsylvania when when the majority of hunters, all the surveys they did said guide people didn't want. It was driven by the manufacturers and money, and that's the manufacturers are pushing these scopes that are range finding scopes and the guns that can. It's all driven by the manufacturers and money, like anything else in life. It's driven by money. Is it good for us in the end? At some point in time, the hunters have to, have to, you know, guys like you and I can say, we put a limit on what we discern as fair chase. And will everybody do that? I don't know. The lore of big antler says, I want to shoot them at, you know, a half mile away if I can, because I need to put that buck or bull on the wall. My buddy just said, uh, he, he bought a 300 wood Mac, I think two years ago, and he said, in 10 shots, he could hit the, the steel plate at 800 yards. It's crazy. I'm taking the, taking the gun out of the box. Like, that's mind-blowing. It is crazy, isn't it? It, it? it is, and when I think of all the deer over the years that, you know, I couldn't kill because they were just outside my comfort zone, my basement would be full if I could shoot them with a crossbow. You know, a fool. You know, bulls out west, you know, elk hunting, same, oh my goodness. So, a kid growing up today with these weapons and this stuff, I mean, like I said, I read an article in, in Bugle Magazine, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, that said, you know, there, out west, there's like a lack of these, you know, big mature bulls. There's not in the whole herd system because they're getting sniped at unbelievable distances when they would have gotten away, you know, Years ago, they would have gotten away, lived to fight another day. So, another question I have for you is uh, you're starting to see it out west more, too, where there is talk about separating seasons. So, having a crossbow season. They have, we here have various muzzleloader seasons. We have an inline season, we have a pinlock season. I personally would like to see more of that stuff happen. However, how do you get away from the tradition of the sport? Because that's where I feel like, especially with Pennsylvania, you have such a long-standing tradition built into the community of hunters, whereas like the crossbow falls under archery. Uh, you have 61 days on a long archery season is to hunt with it. What, do you, what would you do for a crossbow season? I mean, would it be three weeks? Would it be two weeks? I mean... It, it's, well, the Game Commission did that on purpose. They never wanted to have separation because they never wanted anybody to say, aha, look it, crossbows are killing this many, blah, blah, blah. We also have the factor of during archery season, you have the, the rut, <laughs> right? Yeah. So what are you going to say? Well, the crossbow guys could have the first two weeks in October. Oh, my God. They, it, you know, you'd have an outrage. Right, right. So the battle not becomes the separate seasons, but that two weeks of, of 1st of November from Halloween on, you know, that's the coveted time. So who do you kick out of that and who do you keep in? Uh, I, think it's, I think that ship has already sailed. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, I think that's kind of a moot point. I don't think you could, and I think the Game Commission did that on purpose. They wanted to lump everybody together as one so that they never had to hear that and make a separation because that, you know, where do you stop with that? That's what's unique about Eastern hunting versus Western hunting where you have such a, 
a large span of time to hunt. Whereas, like they're talking about even making a traditional season out west now. Like, that's wild to me. Mm-hmm. Really cool. I think that's a great idea. Give give the guys that are traditional hunting uh, maybe like the first 10 days of the season. And then they can hunt the rest of archery uh, with the regular archery. Stuff like that, I think, is, is innovative. I don't know if, like you said, if we'll ever see something like that yet. Um, one of the things I want to discuss with you is, since especially you're such a big Western hunter, how many times have you been out west? Mm, 10 or 11. Okay. So, when you first started going out, what did it tag for in over the counter elk? Probably around 500, okay. I'm thinking. Okay. I'm thinking. So not, it hasn't jumped too, too much, but I brought up the other day that Western hunting has like become the new fad. You're seeing all these people migrate out east to go hunt out west. And the DNRs, the game commissions, the conservation agencies are taking advantage of that, which they should. But at what point is the threshold crossed? For example, you're seeing Idaho's over-the-counter tag jump up $250 and selling out in the first week that it goes on sale. Whereas, 40 years ago, I could go there and buy an over-the-counter elk tag the third week of the archery yeah, and again, it's driven by money, revenues. Um, you said not much, but you know, when I first started elk hunting, it's doubled since then. And that's only in probably 2007, I killed my bull in Idaho. So I haven't hunted Idaho since, but like your coveted tags are a thousand bucks today. Not even coveted, your, your good general tags over the counter are a thousand bucks, wrap it up. Uh, states are getting smart. They're making you buy a small game tag or a fishing tag combination, blah, blah, blah. They throw a couple of bells and whistles in and the price goes up over a thousand bucks. Also, states, it's getting more difficult. Um, it's getting easier and more difficult. I say easier because of, again, the internet and, and the advent of like on X maps, for example, and stuff where people can do, you know, you know, you can search, you can find private land, public land. Years ago, you had to, you know, knock on doors. You had to do, you know, I, that's, again, that's where I grew up. So I have the transition of both. But today, people can sit at their computer in, in you know, February, March, and, and do all their searching and, and talk to game biologists in, in certain states and, you know, get on chat rooms and find out, you know, where these good canyons are and where public land starts and ends. And, you know, like I said, some of these mapping services show you public land, private land, you know, all the boundaries. And there you go, you walk around, you know, with your cell phone and, and you can do things that when I started out, you took paper maps and a, and a compass and it was difficult. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's easier to access, but it's more difficult to get these tags. I'll give you an example. Um, two years, three years ago, I went to apply for my Wyoming tag. I had two points. It was a general tag. And typically with three, two points plus a drawing, you should have drawn that tag. I didn't. I was like, I told my buddies who hunt Wyoming all the time, they're like, I can't believe that. Okay, a couple years later, I, I put in again. Now I have three points. I should be a shoe in. 
That was this year. Guaranteed, my plans are made, you know, truck is packed, I've been, I've been, you know, training all year. I got rejected again. Wyoming keeps moving the target. Now, this past year, they took out of the allocation of non-resident tags, now they gave, I don't know, 10, 20% of those tags to the outfitters. So they're ap appeasing the local, you know, business people. They're get so guys on the outside from the east or wherever, it's harder for us to draw these general tags because they're given to the outfitters. Now next year, you know, I can draw that tag if I use an outfitter. Do they keep moving the target? And it's like that all across the West. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 80% of Colorado is over the counter. Everybody used it as a consolation state. You don't draw anywhere, go to Colorado. Well, you know, uh, any hunter knows that animals respond to pressure and the more pressure, you know, elk don't run 100 yards like a whitetail do. They, they run four miles and they don't come back. And you know, when they're over there four miles away and they don't smell a human being, it's a pretty good place to be. And they don't come back. So, you know, once them, once them elk are off public land, you know, and, and there they are, 400 elk on, on a ranch over there across the border. You're done. Yeah, I've seen it. So it's difficult. It's not easy. It's hard. And it's not getting any easier. Well, so what I'm worried about is you're seeing point creep happen. You're seeing more and more people participate, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But how do we mitigate that and make it affordable for the everyday outdoors? So that it doesn't in five years, 10 years, cost $1,500 to $2,000 to do an over-the-counter health tech, over-the-counter health hunt. You know what I mean? Like, we're seeing normal hunts start to creep up into the price of, like, I don't know, some outlandish hat. I don't think there's an end to it. That's scary. People, That's super scary. People working at McDonald's today for $15 an hour, elk hunts are going to be going for fifteen grand, and, and I don't see an end to it. You know, people, there are those who can afford it, and, and unfortunately, a lot of people are going to be left out in the cold. Um, see, to me, that's not the North American model of conservation. It's not. That's like Europe. It's not. And it's going to be a pay to play. Yeah, it's it's not. That's why I'm a big advocate for the Elk Foundation because their biggest their model is conservation. They're they're trying to preserve all the public land we have. They're they're fighting to get easements. There's there's public land that's surrounded by private land that you can't access. They're working to get easements in so that we have those for the next generation because. You know, if this stuff gets subdivided and developed, you know, we're losing land. Um, so that's, I'm a big advocate of the Elk Foundation. They do a lot for the future of not only elk hunting, but hunting out west, all that land, mule deer, antelope, you know, sharp tail grouse, everything. You know, land conservation is the key. If you have the land, you'll have the animals. But if, right. if we start losing that, um, and you brought up, that, that's like really came to light lately, and I want to just kind of let the audience know. So what Joe's talking about is there's a lot of basically postage stamp public land out west where the entire perimeter is surrounded by private land. If and you look at an aerial, it looks like a checkerboard. Right, exactly, exactly. And 
we as the public have no access to that land outside of being dropped in on a helicopter. And there's, I think there's a couple different foundations that are working on easement access for those, those pieces, which, I mean, it's in the millions of acres. A million. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's wild. I had no idea that it was that large. So hopefully that really gets a good foothold and pushes forward. Uh, that would be huge. And to that note, um, one of the things Torrance talking about is working with these private landowners to get easement, just a road access in. Now, if these foundations such as REMF and, and others, state land agencies, get this access, it's only temporary. It's us as hunters who have to keep that, be courteous to the landowners because you're basically, you know, they're, they're allowing you to drive through their property to access public land. So that's where it comes to, you know, us as the public using those easements to be courteous, you know, to do the right thing, to be, you know, close the gates behind you, do whatever the landowner, so that we ensure that these, these accesses stay. It's so hard to get them open, but to ensure that they stay open. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a good segue. So we're, we're working on an hour here, and one of the things I would like to talk about as well, but I just want to touch on it, so I want to save this potentially for down the road. So I want to talk about why it's so important to join organizations that support hunting, uh, nonprofits, and how to go about doing your research. What would you recommend from one being an insider in an organization, United Builders of Pennsylvania, and then now being an outsider? Um, well, I'm still a life member, um, and it's a great or it's a great state organization. I and one thing I've always done, no matter what state I hunt, I hunt in New Jersey because I live close to the Jersey border. I'm a member of their state bow hunting organization. If I go to Wyoming, I join their state organization, even if it's just for a year, whatever state I hunt in. If they have a state bow hunting organization, I do it. I'm just I'm throwing a $25 bill out to support their their cause. You know, I'm hunting there. They fought on a state level like the UBP has done here. Um, they have a representative at every game commission meeting that speaks about bow hunting. So, hey, it's worth it to throw that $25 out there to support that organization that supports your passion. If you're a passionate bow if you're a pheasant hunter and you like pheasants, join pheasants forever. They're, they're you know, uh, rough grouse society. I mean, I could go on and on. Uh, National Turkey Federation. Um, if you're a turkey hunter, support these organizations that do the grassroots work. You don't have to get out there. I mean, it's helpful if you volunteer and help these organizations, but they need your dollars. They need your dollars. Um, you know, for a case of beer that you're going to, you know, buy, throw a $25 bill towards these organizations. Help them out. Right. You know, they're the ones doing everything. They're, they're clear-cutting properties so that, we, you know, we can grow up some, some forbs for the, for the pheasants, for the quail. Um, they're managing forests. They're doing all that. They're prescribed burns. I mean, you name it. Throw the money towards them. You know, look into them, whatever your passion is. Um, you know, look into these organizations and support them all. Yeah, and I 100% stand by what Joe was saying there. If you have a passion in something particular, um, do your due diligence and do the research on that organization as well. Make sure that uh, 
your funds or your ideologies align with with that organization. That's the only other thing that I would potentially throw in there. Yeah, and with the power of the internet, there's no excuse not to. Exactly. It's so simple. Yes. Exactly. It's so simple. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Joe. Is there anything else that you think you want to touch on? Oh, jeez, I could talk all night, but, you know, we'll revisit it another time. I mean, I have so many things on my heart. I drove out here a little over an hour, and I just, you know, so many things came to light, and, you know, lifetime of experiences, and, and again, I just, I love hunting, and, and I'm very fortunate to have married a woman who had no experience with hunting whatsoever, had no knowledge of it, but has come to fully accept it and love it, and, uh, my wife is a top producing real estate agent and she blows people away because um, she's an attractive woman and she dresses attractive and, and you know she looks very professional as a realtor but as she's showing a house if she sees a guy with a camouflage hat or something she'll like throw it out there and say hey are you a hunter and he'll say well yes i am and she'll say well yeah we're my husband's a hunter too and yeah we eat venison that's all we eat and and like she, she has cued into things like she'll see a turkey feathers. She knows everything. She knows a little bit and she blows people away with this. And she actually uses it as a, you know, a marketing yeah. thing for herself, but she really means it. She's sincere. Um, she has her own office in, in a big building. She has her own office in a real estate building. And on the floor, she has one of my bearskin rugs. Cool. And yeah, and she's very proud of that. And she's had pushback on that. And she's had somebody, you know, a guy came in and, you know, made a bad comment to her. And she said, well, just get out, you know, you know, because if if you don't, this is my office and, you know, that's mine. So I'm very fortunate to have that. Um, She supports our lifestyle, loves it, loves, you know, that I hunt and provide for us. And and she sees what a, what a blessing it is and, and how clean and healthy it is, you know, for our lifestyle. Um, she supports all my heads on the wall and, and that it, you know, we'll be going down the road and there'll be a, a dead raccoon in the road and she'll say, pull over, cut that tail off. I want that. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I mean, funny. she, she would, she would blow you away just the way she is. It's unbelievable. And the way she has become, I must say, because she was not this, she had no exposure to hunting, fishing, the outdoor lifestyle. And here she is today. And it's, it's amazing. That's I'm very, awesome. I'm very blessed. That's awesome. I think I'm going down that exact same road with uh, my fiance, so that's pretty cool. Uh, I do, with you saying that, I do want to ask you this. Uh, what would be your advice to a hunter that potentially wants to broach a conversation about hunting to a non-hunter or maybe even an anti-hunter? What advice would you give them? Um, big smile on your face. Have the joy of the Lord in your heart because what we do is good and right by the Lord. And, and just have that, you know, people may get combative with you. Don't go, don't, don't get combative back. Just stand your ground, dig your heels in, but have the joy of what is in your heart. If you love to hunt, man, then the love will exude out of you and, and, and good things will come from you. Um, don't be combative. That's what they want. That's, that's what people want. Don't give them that. Just, just show them how happy you are and, and the good and, and righteous things about hunting. And you'll come out of there a winner every time because I do. I do. People, people are, get angry because they can't get to me. Right. They can't make me feel ashamed. Oh, you kill animals for, oh, you think you're a tough guy. You kill animals. 
they can't make me ashamed. They can't, they can't beat me. They can't defeat me. No way. I won't let it happen. And with a big smile, I'll have a conversation with you. And, it, and they'll walk out and they'll be on fire. And there I am. Like, hey, have a nice day. You know, you can't get me. Don't let them get you ever. That's really good advice. That's, and that, that's excellent advice because it almost seems today that so many conversations don't go that way, regardless of what topics they are. And kind of getting back to that concept, standing your ground, understanding that you're in it for the right reasons. Absolutely. That's really good advice, Joe. I appreciate that. Yes. All right, fellas. Uh, so I guess we'll wrap up here. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We're going to have Joe hopefully on the podcast here a little bit later down the season. Uh, he's got some whitetail hunts. What other just whitetail this year? Well, because of uh, some issues, I had to cancel my elk hunt. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a, a week off for the archery bear season here in PA. And uh, I got some good areas, and I'm going to take my camper, and I'm going to spend a week up in the mountains. And, That's awesome. And see if I can, can do that. Um, I got two phenomenal labs that I love to pheasant and waterfowl hunt with, and I'm going to spend a lot of time with them. Um, I'm really going to diversify my hunting. I'm going to get into a lot of things that I really put on a back burner over the last few years because I really – got into my archery hunting and my waterfowl went south and my pheasants and you know uh, so I'm getting back into a lot of other things isn't that like a, a breath of fresh air it really is I, and I, I, I've been telling all my bow hunting buddies like you can't believe how much fun I have like watching my labs work and retrieve and, and hunt I, it's just I fell in love all over again mm-hmm. really you know so if I have any advice to everybody really don't get caught um, diversify. There's so much fun to have out there. There's so many things to do. Um, you know, get out there and do it. I, could, I absolutely agree. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the White Hill Theories Podcast.